Welcome back, dear friends, to this latest episode of the podcast, The Way Out Is In. I'm Joe Confino, working at the intersection of personal transformation and systems change. And I am Brother Fabhu, a Zen Buddhist monk, a student of Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh in the Plum Village tradition. And today we are welcoming back Fabhu to Plum Village because he's been halfway around the world. He's been to Colombia and Ecuador and Costa Rica on her first retreat tour. Um, since Thai passed, but also since the pandemic ended. So, um, so we're going to look at what it's like to be back on the road or on the path, maybe. The way out is in. Welcome. I am Joe Confino. And I am Brother Fab Hu. Fab Hu, welcome back. I've missed you. Thank you. It's so lovely to sit in the company of Joe, of uh, Kata, of Paz, of Brother Nim Tung, and in the presence of Tai, because we are sitting in our legendary sound booth now, which is Tai's kitchen in the sitting still hut. And I have to say, Upper Hamlet. Is so beautiful and fresh right now. Just to come back and hear the birds singing, as well as to see all of the young leaves in the trees, it's a new new spring. And brother, it's not only the birds that are singing; it's Fap Who that we're hearing singing again because um, because you were missed. And uh, and and of course, we don't want to sort of start injecting egoic matter into your head. Thank but you. But you are missed, brother Fap Who, when you're not here. Um, your p- lack of presence is felt. So, um, so welcome home. Thank you. I feel very at home here. Yeah. So, brother, we are going to explore what it's like to be back on tour. I think that rhymed almost. Yeah. <laughs> so, brother, tell us a little bit first, where have you been? Because you've been away six weeks now. Yeah, so we were invited to go to Ecuador. Um, and to hold two retreats, um, one retreat in a very special place, the Galapagos Island, right? It's an I know, island. that's watering my seeds of jealousy. Yes, breathing in, I'm aware of my seed of jealousy. <laughs> breathing out, I experienced it through Brother Fab. Who? <laughs> ah, not quite the same. <laughs> and um, I had a chance to practice slow walking meditation with the turtles. Um, and then we had the chance to also go to Colombia, where... Our Sangha in Bogota is very strong. In Bogota itself has uh, four four local Sanghas. And they were very organized in hosting um, public talks, days of mindfulness, workshops, as well as uh, two, two retreats. And one retreat with children, which was a beautiful experience to re-engage again with children because for myself on a personal note I came to Plum Village as a child so it's always um, for me it fits whenever we have children in the retreat it touches my heart and then we had time to explore and to have a resting retreat in Costa Rica with our dear friend Christiana Figueres. Okay. So brother let's just step back for a moment and be reminded of 
why do you go on retreats? I mean, you could sit in Plum Village, couldn't you, and just let the world come to you. But um, but Thai created a real tradition of taking these teachings out into the world. So can you just tell us a little bit about yeah. why you do that? Really, it's um, it's it's not... Uh, it wasn't just created by Thai, but it's a continuation of the original time of the Buddha. And the Buddha and his community, part of their path is not just to practice for themselves, but it is very important to share the practice with the, the ones who support you and the ones who are also seeking spirituality. So it is easy to just sit in Plum Village and allow people to come here and uh, enjoy the retreat center. And I would say like we have the best condition because we have nature, we have an energy that has been developed for 40 years now, as this year we celebrate 40 years of Plum Village. But we know that... Um, Everyone needs conditions to meet their dharma. And a way of us walking the path and to really identify why I am a monk is to have a heart of service, is to know that I am a part of this world and I want to be a part of it in my sharing of my discovery in the practice. Even though it is a transmission I have received from Thai and from the Buddha, um, and I have transformed on, on um, my own suffering and created my own joy and my own happiness. But it's too selfish to just keep that for oneself. And as a monk, the word bhikshu, uh, it means beggar. So a part of our life is we, we, we go for alms to receive, to be supported on a spiritual path. Because we're, people may ask, yeah, but you don't work. So why should I give? But we say, actually, we work internally. We, we plow the fields of our mind, of our consciousness, and we identify the roots of our suffering and we transform it. And through our transformation, we have ingredients to offer to the world these practices. And this is what the Buddha did. This is what his Sangha did. And when Tai was a young monk, Tai is our teacher Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, he was growing up um, during a time of war. And the question is like, how can I still be a part of the world, but still be a spiritual person? And my contribution will have to be the side of nonviolence, um, the side of compassion, the side of peace, the side of understanding, the side of looking at death, looking at um, suffering, looking at sorrow. So that is our internal work that we would like to devote our whole life to so that we can share it to friends who will meet suffering in the world and they may need a few elements so that they can look deeply into their own personal journey. And so this is really a part and a tradition of the Plum Village monastic order. And in this way, there's so many layers to what it can do for us on an individual level. Number one, I, I think I shared it. Um, it reminds us of why we are practicing because we can become very dull in, in our own dharma, in our own practice. Oh, every day I'm just going to sit. I'm just going to smile. I'm going to breathe. And it, found, it's, it sounds amazing to do. It's a privilege. But then because the mind is always seeking for something else. So if we don't have a purpose, then we may lose our path. 
And so by serving, by offering retreats is a way of offering, but also receiving, by receiving the nutriment of being able to contribute something to someone. And um, the other element is by engaging with people, I am reminded to practice more better. So I noticed when I was on tour, I would walk more mindfully. I would eat more um, with more moderation. <laughs> I would speak more gently because you want to walk your talk. Because if I'm going to give this Dhamma, I have to practice it. So it becomes a mirror for you. To serve is also a kind of mirror. And I think for myself, it was also a crucial moment because um, Thai just passed and Plum Village was in the state of mourning and of grieving. And there's many layers to that. And I myself also asked myself, should I go? Should I go on this tour? Because I was feeling very vulnerable and I had fear of not being able to represent solidity, um, freshness, stillness, and space because I felt I, I wanted those, I wanted time to cultivate that. Um, but one evening I was sitting in, in my room and having tea with um, Brother Phap Tring, and, uh, who was my roommate. And we were recounting um, the stories that we've had with Tai. And, and you know, it was always Tai's joy to be able to serve. That was kind of the nutriment that he had that kept him going. And it, it's, you think that to give, you lose something, but actually to give, you're receiving more. And I will never forget um, 10 years ago, we were in Nottingham and preparing for 30 years of Plum Village, standing on our two feet. That was the theme. 30 years, we, st we are now solid and we stand on our two feet and we have no more fear. And I wanted to invite Tai, Tai, let's take a break. Let's take a year to rest. But it, and it doesn't mean we're not offering retreats, but it means Tai stopped touring for one year. But stay in Plum Village, we'll create all the events here for people to come and celebrate with us. And I think it was tempting because like, Tai did think about it. But then Tai had a pause and then he looked at me and he said, but Tai is like a doctor and Tai have medicine and there are people who are sick outside. And as a doctor, his responsibility is to offer the cure. And so Tai said, and that gives Tai joy. And I just joined my palm and I bowed and I understood. And in that particular moment, when I was sitting with my brother Fabri, my younger brother, when we were recounting the stories and I was reminded of that story. And I said, I can sit here and cry all day, drink tea, look at the trees, look at the clouds and contemplate no birth, no death and have space for my sorrow. But I can also drown in my sorrow. I can drown in my grief. And so... I would say the Thai in me, the teacher in me said, go on the tour and see Thai through your action. See Thai through the teachings that now you have a responsibility to offer. See Thai through the service of the four members who will be on tour with you. That is your Sangha. That is the living Thai. 
and have space for that. And that was when I'm like, okay, I'm going to go. Yeah, and I remember, brother, when um, Paz and I arrived in Plum Village during the pandemic and we went for a walk with you soon after you arrived. And, and, already, and that was only, that was probably eight, nine months into the pandemic. And you're already concerned a bit at that point about, you know, the, the essence of the Plum Village tradition is about the service. And that if, if you're just a traditional closed monastery, that that energy of activism, of, of engaged Buddhism, of, will actually be lost. And I, I remember when um, I was in Bhutan once, uh, many years ago, and I was speaking to uh, the people who ran the Gross National Happiness Project, and they were saying how they had been bringing in Thais, monastics from Hong Kong, to work with the disaffected youth in Bhutan. Now, we all think of Bhutan as being the perfect uh, nirvana, the sort of Shangri-La, but they had lots of their own problems. And, and they were saying that it was impossible to get the Bhutanese monks to come down from their mountain monasteries because they wanted to stay there and, and be in their contemplative mood, which is fair enough. But actually, there were all these young people who were suffering, who needed the support, and there was no one who would be prepared to come. So they were bringing in actually Thais monastics to come and bring that sort of balm. So I think that's a that's a great example of of the importance of not just being Do, in the practice, but actually sharing the practice. Yeah, and it's also it's a way of for us monastics, especially in the Plum Village tradition to still feel a part of the world. Because there is there is a concept, an idea that when you become a monastic, you leave the world. And we and the world are two separate things. And um, and for me, it's a very opposite experience because I'm a monk, I can say this. It's actually, we are very a part of the world, but we do it in the light of mindfulness, how we take care of our day-to-day chores, how we take care of relationship, how we have time to contemplate and to go inwards. And actually, we, because we have experienced this, we can share this to, quote-unquote, the normal people, which is like you, Joe, and you, Kata, and Paz. That is a great compliment. (laughs) I'm normal. But to, to still know that as a layperson, the Dharma still works in the setting of a household, in the setting, in a company, on an individual level, in schools, on relationship. And there's so many layers to the teachings of the Buddha. And for us to keep Buddhism relevant and alive is to offer, because then we are connected to the suffering of the world. And the only way to keep Buddhism updated and the teaching relevant is to be connected to the suffering and the happiness of society. So on these teaching tours that Thay has created as a model for us, we still feel connected to everyone, to the world. We nourish our aspiration. And when going to countries such as um, Colombia, Ecuador, um, where it's more difficult for our friends to come all the way to France, visa work, the prices, etc. So this is like we are bringing the Dharma to places that maybe we'll never have a chance to arrive to Plum Village. But 
we have the conditions to bring the seeds of mindfulness to these lands, and so we call them the planting the seeds of mindfulness. And brother, tell us what was, you know, this is your first trip out and of course our post pandemic and, and how did you find, what was, was there a general mood amongst the retreatants? I mean, what, what did you pick up about how people are feeling and, and what they needed from the practice? The Dharma, the practice is deep and lovely. I, I like to start off with that. Um, and when you come and you see it for yourself and you taste it for yourself, everybody touch a kind of stillness that is felt within within the realm of being with people. I think we've missed that, being able to feel safe around each other, um, feeling the conditions to connect, not through the screen, but to see each other's flesh and bones and to hear each other. Um, and that energy, you cannot replace that through through a screen. Um, so just to be together and to sit in silence all and to enjoy breathing, I think that was something already very profound um, that was deeply touched by many. Um, and on a deeper level, we touch grief very deeply in the last two years. Everyone has been practicing with grieving on many different layers. Um, even a child who was nine years old who joined our retreat and she joined the Dharma sharing and through the Dharma talks of, uh, I talked about emptiness, about seeing the continuation in uh, the non-form and uh, I touched, uh, I taught about uh, formlessness, about uh, even though our loved ones may not still be here, but through the eye of meditation, we can see them through the new form by the way they have impacted us and experience that they have offered us is now them in another form through us. And so this young girl who was only nine years old, uh, first of all, I just have to water her flower. She was my inspiration for the Dhamma Talks because she would sit upright on the cushion, look at me with glowing eyes. And even though she had to listen through simultaneous translation through Spanish with Brother Dukji, um, and as I was giving a Dhamma Talk, I normally at nine years old, you would think like they would just like get bored and fall asleep or um, get very antsy. But she was sitting there solid as a mountain, looking at me with like wonders in her eyes. And I'm like, she's going to be my focus for this, for that Dhamma talk. And uh, I was reported because she was in the wake up group. And she, even though she was just nine years old, the limit is uh, 235. So she is in the wake up group. <laughs> but uh, she, uh, she expressed about uh, this is an opportunity for her to share her grief of um, witnessing and and uh, going through the passing of her grandmother. And just to have space for grief, I think was very important. And we did it not on an individual level, but we did it on a collective level. 
So through our retreats, we establish um, Dharma sharing families or sharing circles where we all come together. There's a facilitator inviting everyone to to breathe at the beginning. So we create this um, feeling of oneness. And then we always have an icebreaker. We, we all ask everyone to introduce themselves, maybe share what is the aspiration for this retreat or any way to get them to open up a little bit. And then um, what I saw in every retreat um, when we were in South America, it's like once you allow that, the door of the heart to open, what comes out is for many, not I wouldn't say for everyone, but for many, is that they have been practicing or they have been dealing with grief, with grieving. And then to do it in a collective level of oneness and just sharing it openly and allowing others to listen and you feel heard and having the space to grieve. And so in one of my Dharma sharing, we all just cried. I'm like, we're going to take time to just cry together. And it was very healing, very, very healing. And um, we, we, did a, we did a podcast on the meditation on death. And that was more like looking at how do we look at death, which is a destination that we will all, at, as humans, we will all arrive at. But I think um, what I touch is like our practice is to identify the emotions, identify the feelings that we go through. And we normally we talk about happiness, um, joy, or suffering, pain. And here on a collective level, it was like, we are all identifying, we are grieving together. So having the space for that was very powerful and on the collective and then on the individual for myself personally also. So let's come to that in a moment, brother. And, and you know, as you're talking, it reminds me that I was at a very well-known um, sort of spiritual community in Scotland and, um, and there were many, many indigenous leaders there and we held a grief ceremony for all the, well, it were, it were two aspects, for all the destruction we were creating to nature, but for all the suffering that Indigenous people have felt and experienced over many centuries. And, and it was, as you described it, just to be in a circle and just to experience that grief together. Um, and I wrote an article for The Guardian as a result of that, which was, which was basically saying that actually... If we're not able to touch our grief around the destruction we're creating in the world, then actually we can't we we can't save it because it's only by going into our grief, it's only by going into the pain and the suffering that we can touch the tenderness at our center. And when we touch the tenderness at our center, then it's like a call to do something about it. Whereas if we try and bypass the grief, and I think we should both in a minute share our experiences of personal grief but if we try to bypass it then actually we're blocking that tenderness we're, we're, we're like protecting that center and by then and because of that then we, we just stay in our heads and we just we're actually in denial so I think the power of grief is actually um, su super important but brother tell us about because you know let's not forget that you know we only recently in Plum Village here while you were away there was a hundred day um, marking of Ty's passing. 
it's not very long. And obviously, he was not only a teacher, but he was a f- deep friend and, and like a father to you. So, so what came up for you around grief mm. while you were away? Mm. Recognizing it, um, recognizing the sadness is um, a practice that I'm still doing today. Um, but to do it in the light of seeing that um, that the teacher is not, I, I, I am practicing being free from the experience of having him right beside me. And because on one end, I am so privileged that I've been his personal attendant for so long, meaning that my cells, my flesh, my experience, I, I can experience him. And there is always an attachment to coming back to the past, which is like, oh, wow, it would have been, it would have been so cool if, uh, if uh, Tai can be here. And, and, and I'm, I'm saying this not as it's a negative thing to also have those thoughts, but it's more like I'm, I'm aware of the trap of, of attachment also of an experience. And I think recognizing that, ah, I, I want to see Tai um, right beside me in a physical form and then saying, ah, I still have those feelings. I still have those longing for um, a physical teacher right beside me. And not to have shame about that was important um, because there is um, a, an idea that I create for myself. It's like, Papu, you are the abbot. You are elder brothers of many, many siblings in the community. You should be solid as a mountain. You should, you know, push that away. And and this is not just a monastic, but I think any humans, we go through this thought, especially when um, we experience grieving. We're like, no, I'm stronger than that. I'm a man. I'm a woman. I am... You know, I, I'm better than this, and and this view, right, tells us to block this energy. And um, we were at the airport, and I I love the experience of the airport with Tai. And um, what Tai usually do is, you know, Tai would ask me to do check in for him, and then after he does the check in, we would enter right into the security in order to. It's, it's in a way, it's like now we're entering into the touring mode. And I would walk behind Tai in the airport. And this was my experience of like, this is walking meditation in the world where, you know, people are rushing to their gates. People are on their phones. People are on their laptops working away, like punching. Like everyone is, there's so many energies around the airport, Right. But every time I walk with Tai, it's like peace is every step. And I was at the airport and that feeling came up. I was like, ah, I I can see Tai in front of me. And then now I channel that Tai in front of me. I'm like, I invite Tai. I I would say it in my heart and I would say it in my mind. Tai, walk with me in this airport. And my energy would switch and I would walk as if Tai was present. And 
there were moments I was very successful and there were moments I would totally forget that I'm a practitioner in the airport. But this, the teachings is alive in me. And that's one thing that I, I was so confident about. And one of the questions that I had was like, am I solid now to go and to teach? Thay always said that once you have tasted the Dharma, if you take care of the seed, it will become a root for you that you can always rely on. It's like it's your island that you can always take refuge in. And sometimes we forget that we have that refuge until we're in a different setting. So the airport was a different setting. And because I, I, I forgot to say this, but on the first day of flying, the four of us were at the airport and for some reason, because of the names, um, my first name and my last name were Switch. And we, we tried to work with the airline to recorrect my, my name, my, my lay name. And accidentally, they canceled my flight. And that's why I was stuck in Bordeaux for one day without my three brothers and sisters. And it was the first time I was stuck at an airport, helpless, fully helpless, the guy at the counter wasn't much of a help. He said, I can't do anything about this. I'm so sorry. The ticket says it's canceled. Please contact the airline. I cannot check you in. So here I was with a situation. My three monastics were worried that I wouldn't be coming because I'm the eldest in the delegation, which was going to offer a lot of the teachings. Sister Drangim, who was a young Dharma teacher, just became Dharma teacher uh, a few months ago. I'm like, sister, it's your time to step up if I, if I won't make it. But, you know, actually deep down in my heart, I knew I, w I, w I would arrive because the Sangha will find a way. And in those moments when we were sitting, there was anxiety, there was feelings of worry, there was stress and then um, we're, um, grieving and all of these emotions were coming through. And, you know, the safest place is the island of mindful breathing. No matter how much you stress about it, it's not going to change the situation. What you can do is contact the airline, have some understanding, try to understand, not yell at them. I, I did say I'm a little bit upset that you canceled my flight, you know, but there's more of a, there's a better way of communicating because the way you communicate will also affect you. If I become more angry with, with it, then I become angry even though I'm angry at the airline, that doesn't help anything because that's just going to water the seed of anger in me. And then I had nothing to do. Suddenly I had to spend um, one night in Bordeaux and I say, like, okay, this is a chance to practice and to see how I can invite Thai to be present outside of the monastery. And so there were many moments through the tours that I was able to invoke my teacher inside of me and not on an intellectual level, but on a heartfelt level and on a level of true continuation. And um, Thay has never been to South America, if I recall correctly. I know Thay has never been to Ecuador. Thay has never been to Colombia. And I don't think Thay has been to Costa Rica. So... Every country that um, I, I was in, we always had walking meditation um, sessions. I would always dedicate the first 20 steps for Thai. And I would really invite Thai to walk with me 
through these um, um, sessions of practice. And it's easier to do it in the setting of a Sangha because the Sangha is one of Thai's gem, is one of the creations of Thai that and he emphasizes on for us to continue to develop and to build. And so what other better place to honor Thai than with the Sangha? So every walking meditation, I would um, take 20 steps and dedicate it to Thai. And then I started naturally the insight that Thai is in you from the intellectual level was becoming more and more present with my steps, with my breath. And one thing that I realized is that grieving is not a one day thing. It's not like you you cry for one day and then you can you can like move on. It's not as simple as that. And I recognize that I will probably be grieving um, for years to come. And it's totally okay because an expression of love is grief, especially when with someone um, that you have lived with has impacted you, have changed your way of being, have given you freedom, have given you such insight. You can't remove that person outside of you. There's no way that that person is not in you now. And so because of that insight, there is a place of sadness when suddenly now that person doesn't exist in the realm of a form of a human. But thanks to meditation and thanks to the insight of the teachings of the Buddha and of Thai, is that we can see Thai through different forms now. But on the individual level, on the tour, for me, it was a grieving tour through the Dharma. And through my actions of offering, I was able to see and continue Thai. So, you know, the insight, we are the continuation. And for me, like this is now. It's not a calligraphy. It is not a slogan. Through the Torah, like this was the continuation in action. And so I think what I have learned is that grieving is also an energy, but how do you channel your grieving? And so I was channeling it through my Dhamma through my way of presence, recognizing other people grieving so I can be there and to listen to them. And just for some, you know, just to have the space to cry. You know, I, I hug, in, in South America, there's a lot of hugging. <laughs> that was very, very um, 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 a deep experience and practice for us and uh, for one of our siblings who was um, grew up in South, Southeast Asia. Um, hugging is not such a culture, but she totally embraced it. And in a lot of the huggings, like people were able to just cry. So in a way, like the grieving can come through many layers. And for me, is how do we channel our grief? And so I was able to channel it through my sharing and I was able to share in some of the Dhamma talks and some of my Dhamma sharing very openly about my sadness, about my um, deep looking of how I am processing the journey. And that opens different channels for other people. So I started to honor the grieving, honor the grief. 
and then to breathe with it, to walk with it, um, moments to dedicate to the sadness, but then not to drown in the sadness. And what what was beautiful was that I was able to touch the joy and the smile and the laughter and the liberation in a way of coming together. And and for me, that's also continuation of Thai. And so it was a very healthy tour for myself on a personal level and then on the level of 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 the Sangha outside because we had a feedback session at the end of the tour with the lay community. And many of them shared like, we thought that you would cancel the trip because it's not so long after the passing of um, our teacher. And they would have totally understood if we needed to cancel. Um, but they were so happy that we didn't because I also recognize that Thai doesn't just belong to me and that so many people are grieving um, with the passing and the continuation of Thai. And so to also honor that, that collective sadness, but then um, shine light on the continuation. So I, I did workshops on Sangha building and, and really emphasizing like why the Sangha is where we can touch Thai through our practice because Thai has said that on so many different occasions through the teachings. Um, I cried two times publicly, did not expect that to happen. Um, one time um, when we watched A Cloud Never Die together, as it is now released for everyone to watch. It's only 27 minutes, but it's a very powerful 27 minute of um, of watching it. But we watch it as a sangha, and that was even more powerful. And, you know, I was sitting at the bell, and once the film started, like, I started hearing people cry. And I was like, Fapu, do not turn around. If I turn around, I'm going to cry too. It's going to be a domino effect. But then after the film, so, because it's so powerful, people just needed a point of focus. So everybody turned towards me and I'm like, I guess I have to say a few words. And, and as I, it was the wrap up, it was the be in and we ended the be in with the, with the film. And um, I said, like, okay, let's just express gratitude to everyone for coming. But as I was starting to share, my tears just started to come. And then I couldn't speak for a little bit because the emotions were so powerful. And then once again, to allow yourself to be human and then to honor the tears. And I think that was very powerful for, for many of the retreatants to see a monk cry like that. And many joined me in crying. <laughs> and then the last one was the last day of our last retreat. And I was sharing on the three doors of Liberation, which we have sure. a podcast, podcast episode on. <laughs> and it's emptiness, uh, signlessness. signlessness, and aimlessness. And I read a poem of Thai uh, in it. And once again, I got really emotional. And then just allowing yourself to have the space and not to feel shameful about it. Brother, thank you so much for, 
for sharing so openly about that because I, I think you know, particularly in the West, um, it's people often don't know how to grieve or don't feel there's the space to grieve, and that sort of is something that that I experienced in my life very strongly. And um, I was uh, talking to my brothers just the other week because um, in we were just sharing collectively that within our family we were not taught how to grieve, and um, and then there are re- good reasons for that. That um, and I've talked about it in previous episodes. But my mother was a um, was an, uh, escaped the Nazi regime when her family was killed in the in the camps and um and my father was forced to flee um from bulgaria with his family and um and in a sense when they came to england they in a sense tried to put the past behind them it's it's like it was sealed a sealed door because they you know in their minds it's like we're starting a new life so let's start it clean and let's make sure that that um us as their children have um, are able to start this new life free from all this trauma and suffering. And while that is a very noble way to see the world, what it did was it meant that all that grief that was locked up and unexpressed came into us because, and that's one of Ty's great teachings about, you know, trauma, everything gets passed through our ancestors into the current generation because it was never talked about. It was there like this big sort of big heavy weight, but none of us really understood that we weren't grieving because it was just not a a muscle that we had built. Um, And I remember after my father's death, it actually took me 10 years to recognize I hadn't grieved and and um I always remember the moment that I that I recognized that was um I was on a a personal development workshop and I had a, a very deep sort of moment of realization and I, and I had I had felt this tightness around my around my stomach and I had closed my eyes and it just felt stronger and stronger and then suddenly it was like a dam that burst and all this energy just came through me, up through my body, above my head. And then everyone that I knew and loved floated towards me one by one. And to each one I would say, you know, I I see you, I bless you, and I let you go. And they would float off. And then finally my father came before me. And I said, I see you, I bless you, and I now know I need to let you go. And and then I just collapsed into tears. And and what I realized is I because I hadn't grieved for him, I was holding desperately onto him. And I remember um after that um I met my mum uh, a few months later and we were going for a walk. It was winter time, we were going for a walk in a park in South London, and we were walking through this avenue of trees where all the leaves had fallen off. And there was one leaf still remaining on one of the trees. And my mum turned to me and said, it's so important for that leaf to let go of the tree. Because if that, if you hold on, not only are you holding on, but you're not releasing the other person to be free. You're actually 
energetically holding back their energy as well as holding back yours. And, um, and that's because she had learned in her later life to really face into her grief about what had happened in Germany and to be open and to heal that part of her. And as she healed that part of her, she opened up and blossomed into this beautiful being that was able to represent grief and, and represent healing so deeply. So, you know, I think the process of grieving is very difficult for some people to even find that space. But when we are able to that, find that space, it is a great healing. Mm. It is. And I think only by embracing it does it have a chance to heal. And I, I, I had um, an experience with my father because my father um, left Vietnam as a boat person um, after the Vietnam War. In after 75 and uh, he left as a boat person the first time and then he got caught and by getting caught you're in prison and it was very harsh during that time and everybody was um, viewed as a traitor if you leave the country like that and my father was um, put into prison for two years um, with the because of the intention of fleeing as a refugee and he never gave up. After two years, he went again. And he succeeded this time. And But he spent like four days in the great ocean and not knowing birth and death is, it's just, it's just uh, a flick away. Like you can just die very easily if there's a huge storm or if you are attacked by pirates or if just the fear also of not being rescued, running out of um, uh, food, water, and uh, fuel for the boat, etc. And then another two years in refugee camp in Hong Kong. And then making it to Canada, a new country, a new culture, don't speak the language, have to adapt yourself. And so all of this experience was like piled up. And, but then he was on flight and fight mode. So you, you have this energy of like the aspiration was I need to get my family to um, Canada. So I never met my father until I was three years old because when I was born, my father was already um, as a boat person. And so he, he went through such a crazy journey that um, which led him to Plum Village after he, he made it possible for the whole family to arrive. And his spiritual seed uh, awoken. It's like, I need some healing. I need some space to, to embrace this whole journey. And Plum Village became a refuge for him to just let the, um, the dust settle. And then... Um, there's a sutra where the Buddha says a farmer, a meditator opens a bag of beans that has multiple different kinds of beans and open it and then take time to identify each separate beans as it is, the color, name it, work with it, plant it. And so for my father, I think like the retreats were a place to have space to look at one suffering at a time. You have to know your limits so you, you don't open the whole bag at once, but you open just a little bit, let a few beans out. It's been an ongoing journey 
even today, you know, and my father later on became a monk also, uh, not in the Plum Village tradition, in a, in a different uh, uh, tradition in Vietnam, but practices the Plum Village Dharma. He, he also was OI and, and etc. But um, what I realized is also suffering um, is also a practice that we will continue to do to transform because the suffering we experience of this lifetime, of whatever experience we we take in through our life, whatever path we we walk on, and then the ancestor suffering, and then the society suffering, and then the future suffering. And now we have anxiety of of the future of our climate, the anxiety of where this war will take um, Europe and 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 the world into, and there's just so many levels of suffering, but the island of oneself that we can come back and to be centered and still smile in the face of suffering is very important. So brother, it's so interesting you mentioned that because this is what I was feeling mm. yesterday and this morning mm. was this sense of overwhelm of, um, you know, in my work and coaching people, running workshops, reading the news. Just just the last few days, I've really felt that sense of overwhelm and watching my how I respond to overwhelm, which is losing my patience, getting ratty about things, um, losing my patience, just, just not being able to respond in a, in a way I would like. And um, and we, I went for a walk with Paz today and um and i we were passing this field of corn and and i was looking down at the edge of the field next to where i was walking and normally at the edge of the field the the plants are very small they, they they're not fulsome and it was and they were looking quite bedraggled and i and that was that filled my mind saying oh look at these plants they're not doing very well and then i lifted my eyes and I saw there was this huge field. And then I lifted my eyes and saw there was all this forest behind it. And then I lifted my eyes and saw there was this beautiful blue sky. And, and I realized that actually my whole concentration had been on the bedraggled plants. But actually when I opened up my eyes to see the whole scene, there was extraordinary beauty. And also there were these plants that were suffering at the edge. And so, so I think that there's a real art, isn't there? Because I think a lot of people have this terrible fear that if they open up to their suffering, if they open up to, um, to their grief, that it, they won't be able to contain it. That it will literally be like a nuclear bomb. It will just, just wipe out everything. And so I think I love what you said then. And I think it's, that's in a sense, why I want to come back to it and repeat it is that sense of, you know, go beyond the fear that if you open the door to your grief or suffering that, that you won't be able to handle it. But also do it in community. Do it so that people are there to support you and that you don't feel alone. And that because actually when you share your suffering, it allows other people to share their suffering. And, and then it becomes something that is co-felt and 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 experience together whereas if you feel you're on your own trying to work with your suffering then the the, the worry is that you'll be carried away and no one will be able to save you mm. but brother i'm just wondering so 
One of the Thai's teachings is that you you never enter the same river twice. Yes. So the river may look the same, but it isn't the same. Well, it is the same and it isn't the same. So I'm just wondering, Fap Hu, you're sitting opposite me on Thai's table. You look the same. You sound the same. Are you the same as when you left Plum Village six weeks ago? I am neither the same, nor am I different. <laughs> <laughs> That's mean. Um, I, I have to say I'm more free. I'm much more free, Joe. I'm not, I'm not close to enlightenment, just to be clear on the podcast, but I am more free in the sadness of the passing of Tai. And uh, I feel him as me in the sense of like it's not two things anymore it's present and 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 i i say this because i i don't i don't want to sound like i'm idolizing tai and like he is like i want to be exactly like him no but it's like every dharma talk that i've been offering in the tour and i gave 20 dharma talks in the span of six weeks and Every time that um, I offer a teaching, I would save a moment after the Dhamma talk and I would just share the merit and honor. Thank you, Tai. Thank you for giving me these teachings that I have put into practice. And through your insight of your journey, now I have tools. I have a way that I can offer to others. And I feel so whole. And I think that's why I feel more free. So I'm not attached by an, an older experience, but those experiences are now ingredients for me to continue to offer. And I have to say, this time when I came back to Upper Hamlet, I there is no place like Upper Hamlet. I, I have to say, like just the energy that I was able to enter into was like presence of stillness and when i came like we we just received guests like we have like i think 80 people here right now and with the monastic we're like a hundred something it's a lot of people but the energy is so is so profound in a way and i and i would start to see i start to see tai everywhere and not attach in an image and and then through that insight the way i'm walking in upper hamlet is different than six weeks ago um, when i enter into the room i feel more free in thai's hut i feel there's not a longing for anything it's just like wow thank you thai so i think the gratitude is continuing to expand and the gratitude is not a form of an attachment but it's in a form of of continuation now. So I don't know if if that was clear enough, but that's how I feel. And one year later, when you ask me, I will also feel different. Yes. And if I asked you the same question in five minutes, it would get a different answer. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> the that's beauty of true. impermanence. The beauty of never being the same person in the same river. Is, yes. is that how you said? Never, you never enter the, the river, you never enter the same river twice. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
Dear listeners, um, I hope you have enjoyed listening to Fap Who's journey across the world as much as I have. If you have enjoyed this episode, uh, there are many, many more. And you can find other episodes of The Way Out is In on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on other platforms that carry podcasts. And also, um, with thanks, these episodes are possible thanks to the co-production of Global Optimism of the Plum Village app. And brother, who else? And this podcast was brought to you by the generous donors of the Technikhan Foundation. If you would like to support future episodes of the podcast and the work of the international Plum Village community, please visit www.tnhf.org slash donate. Great. Um, brother, um, we normally end uh, our episodes with um, a short guided meditation, but we're going to do something a little bit different today because um, you mentioned about this very emotional moment of reading Ty's poem about the leaf. And I think it ties in very nicely with what um, I was sharing also about my mum and seeing that one leaf hanging on to the winter tree. So um, tell us what we're going to be doing. So dear friends, I would love to end the podcast with this reading of a poem by Tai and as a passage that Tai wrote, um, but to enjoy it as a meditation. So I would like to invite all of you, dear listeners, wherever you may be sitting on a train, on a bus, in a car, or you are going for a jog, going for a walk, or you are cleaning your home, just to have a moment to pause. You can stand relaxingly or you can find a seat on a bench or on your couch and just start to connect to yourself, feeling your body, feeling alive. Know that you have a wonderful smile on your lip. You can relax your shoulders, relax your arms, your hands. Wiggle your fingers, release the tension, and then bring awareness to your chest, your back, your abdomen rising and falling as you breathe in and out, your two legs, your feet, and just feel your body, be present for your body. And then become aware of in-breath and out-breath. Let us give us a few moments to just breathe mindfully together. Breathing in, I'm one with my breath. Breathing out, I'm one with my out-breath. This is in-breath and this is out-breath. I asked the leaf whether it was afraid to fall, since it was autumn and the other leaves were falling. The leaf told me, no, during the whole spring and summer, I was very alive. 
I worked hard and helped nourish the tree, and much of me is in the tree. Please do not think that I am just this form, because this leaf form is only a tiny part of me. I am the whole tree. I know that I am already inside the tree, and when I go back to the soil, I will continue. To nourish the tree. That is why I do not worry. As I drop from the branch and float down to the ground, I will wave to the tree and tell her, "I will see you again very soon." As I breathe in. I feel one with myself, one with my loved ones. As I breathe out, I continue them in every action, every breath, every step. In, I am a continuation. Out, I smile. To continuation. Thank you, dear friends, for joining us in this episode, and we wish you a wonderful day. Is in.